Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Bob Marley. Legend of reggae. Activist. Rastafarian icon. A hero in his native Jamaica. A man who sought justice and love through his music. But this is not about Bob Marley. This is about his wife, mother of three of his 11 children, and a musician in her own right, Rita Marley. This story is about a girl. Rita Anderson was awoken by the sound of her child crying. It was still pitch black, and the crickets buzzed loudly outside. In the distance, she could hear the sound of the ocean. She sighed as she wearily walked over to her daughter's crib and tried to rock her to sleep. Sharon was barely a year old, and her father was long gone sent away to England, where his family hoped he'd escape the shame of having had a daughter out of wedlock. Rita was left behind in Trenchtown, where all the shame was hers to keep. Rita took her baby in her arms and started to sing, keeping her voice as low as she could so as not to wake her auntie. It wasn't a lullaby she sang, though. She sang one of the songs she had been practicing with her cousin Dream and her friend Precious, what they called rock steady, a new kind of music that had never been heard before. It was 1965, and Jamaica was a newly independent nation. People were talking about new ideas and new forms of uniquely Jamaican identity, and music was a big part of that. Rita had grown up listening to American rhythm and blues on the radio stations out of Miami. But these days, homegrown rock-steady groups like Toots and the Maytals, the Paragons, and the Wailing Wailers ruled the local airwaves. It seemed like everyone in Trenchtown was starting a band, or else turning their back rooms into recording studios. In fact, the Wailing Wailers recorded their songs at a studio right around the corner, Studio One on Brentford Road, 
and they passed by her house every evening on their way there. She and Precious and Dream would wave at them whenever they saw them go by. Sometimes the Wailing Wailers waved back. And then one day, they'd stop to talk. You know, she said shyly, we sing a bit too. So sing then, men, the tall one called Peter said. Rita's auntie didn't allow her to stand in the street and talk with strange men. So she and Precious and Dream stood at the gate and sang. When they were done, Peter nodded. You seem like a decent girl, he said to Rita. You should let us take you up to Studio One for an audition. That was how she, Dream, and Precious had become the Solettes. One more singing group trying to make it in Trenchtown. Recording at Studio One was exciting. It was just an old house that the man who ran it, a guy who called himself Sir Coxone, had renovated, but it still felt like being in the center of everything. It seemed like several groups were always working there at once, like every corner of the place had someone scribbling lyrics or trying out a new chord progression. There was that feeling that was everywhere in Jamaica, the feeling that they were making history together. At first, the Solettes sang backup for other bands. The rest of the time, they trained with Robbie, the Wailing Wailers' shy, handsome band leader. Robbie had a lot of names. Some people called him Bob. His family called him Nesta, his middle name. But to her, he was mostly Robbie. He was serious and patient. He had a way of listening that let you know he was thinking over what he heard, whether it was music or speech. He'd been abandoned by his father and then his mother, and there was a lonely, motherless air to him that made Rita feel protective toward him. Her parents were gone, too. Her mother had left to start another family. Her father had traveled to England to find work. She knew how lonely that could feel. Robbie usually spoke to the group when he had something to say, but he rarely addressed her directly. After a while, the third Wailing Wailer, Robbie's stepbrother Bunny, began handing Rita notes as she left the studio. He liked her, the note said. He'd like to talk with her sometime. She told Bunny she wouldn't mind talking to Robbie, but he still never approached her. All three of the Wailing Wailers seemed like serious, well-brought-up young men, so Rita made sure not to mention that she had a daughter at home. She didn't want them to see her as a dirty woman. No matter how late a rehearsal or a recording session went, she tried to act like there was no particular reason for her to rush home. Then one day, as she was singing, she felt a wetness on her chest. She knew immediately what was happening. She'd waited too long, and her milk was letting down. At home, Sharon would be screaming for milk. She felt her face flush and looked around to see if anyone had noticed the telltale dark spots on her shirt. Someone had. What's that? Robbie blurted. You have a baby? Rita's gaze dropped to the ground. She felt cold all over. She nodded. Where is she? What is her name? Where is her father? Can I see her? She looked up. Robbie was looking at her, not with disgust, but curiosity. And something else. Respect. The cold feeling started to fall away. You go right now, Robbie said. Go home and feed your baby. We'll rehearse later. That was when she knew she loved him. 
From then on, she and Bob, as he was now known, were inseparable. He took her along when the whalers went out to dance halls and grabbed her hand to pull her to safety when a fight inevitably broke out on the floor. She knew he was intimate with other girls, but that was fine. He let everyone know that she was his girl and that he belonged to her. She was the one he looked for. She was the one he sang with, leaning in close, their mouths almost touching, breathing the same breath as they sang the same song. Bob was light-skinned, but he took pride in his black consciousness. He was a Rastafarian, the first one she'd known, though she'd seen Rastas before and heard people speak ill of them. They wore their hair long and dreaded, carried Ethiopian flags and smelled of pot. Bob told her that Rastafarianism wasn't just about smoking marijuana, though that was a sacrament. It was about philosophy and love and justice about refusing to accept a history of abuse and suffering. He told her not to eat pork and to stop straightening her hair. Soon she was preaching what she learned from Bob to anyone who would listen. She got a reputation. People called her Rasta Queenie, and she fought with her auntie over whether she'd eat pork. When Haile Selassie arrived in Jamaica for the first time, Rita went to greet him along with more than a 100,000 other believers. Rastafarians believed the Ethiopian emperor was an incarnation of God. Rita thought Selassie was just a normal-looking man, but she also believed she saw a stigmata on his hand when he waved the crowd. Either way, it felt like real freedom to be standing in that black crowd, meeting a black king. The Whalers were becoming one of the biggest musical groups in Jamaica, but Bob still didn't have much money. In February 1966, he heard from his absent mother. She was living in Delaware. She had married an American, and she was sending for him. There was no question of whether he would go. In Jamaica in the 1960s, you didn't pass up an opportunity like that. But Bob said he wouldn't go unless Rita would eventually join him. They married on February 10th. It was so Bob would sponsor her to come to the United States after he arrived there. And also, he said so she wouldn't forget him and find another man while he was gone. She wore a borrowed tiara. There was a curry goat and two sisters' cake and a whaler's cake that night. Two days later, Bob left for Delaware. Five days after that, his first letter arrived. Dear wife, he wrote. They wrote every day. At the end of the summer, Bob returned to Jamaica. He'd had enough of Delaware, where there was only menial labor, and everything smelled terrible. He and Rita would not make it to America for years. When they did, it was to make a record. By this time, they'd had two children, a girl, Sadella, and a boy, Ziggy, who was still nursing. The Solets and the Whalers had teamed up to form their own company. They were producing, manufacturing, and selling their own records, and in Jamaica, at least, they were as hot as ever. An American soul singer named Johnny Nash heard their music and offered them a recording contract and airline tickets to New York to record on his label, Jad Records. They got along well with Nash at first, and Rita was dazzled by New York City. But Nash instructed Bob to tell everyone she was his sister, not his wife. Apparently, American music stars had to be single to sell records. 
she didn't like it, even though Bob reassured her that she was the queen of his life. And instead of promoting the Whalers, Nash was recording his own versions of Bob's songs. He put his own covers of Guava Jelly and stirred it up on his own record. Those would be Johnny Nash hits, not Whalers hits. Nash later took Bob to record in Sweden, where he was cold and miserable, writing songs of loneliness for Rita. As a final straw, Nash flew out Bunny and Peter and had the three Whalers meet up for a gig in London, only to leave them there without a plane fare home. They managed to make it back to Jamaica, but Rita was discouraged. It was her lowest time. To have been so close to making it, and making it in America, and have it be a fiasco instead. Worse, she was pregnant again. A fourth child coming, and no money to support the three they had. The Whalers were hard at work in the studio, but in Jamaica, even a hit didn't translate into real money. She went back to America to stay with Bob's mother and have the baby, a son, Stephen. By the time she came back to Trenchtown, Bob had two more babies coming, by two more girls. As they got older, Rita could tell that her kids wanted more than their father was able to give them, and she often felt between a rock and a hard place, especially because she knew what the parents in their neighborhood said about them to their own children. Don't go over to Ziggy and Sedella's house. Their father smokes pot. Their mother encourages it. What kind of a house do you think they're growing up in? Whenever she broached the subject with Bob, the most she ever got was apathy. And what he told his children? You don't need friends. You have each other. Rita agreed with this advice. Anyway, soon the opinions of a few close-minded neighborhood parents wouldn't matter anymore. And they were missing out. The gatherings at Bob and Rita's house had become known, not for any bad reason, but as a place where people could get together, have fun, talk about things, not just who won the soccer game or who was on the radio, but real things. And as shy as Bob was, he got along with almost everyone. It was good for him. And Rita knew he liked being adored. By women, especially. He didn't have to do much. The women flocked to him and he was happy to oblige. It was a common thing in Jamaica, but it hurt her deeply. A gulf opened up between them. The husband she had trusted as a friend and equal was now someone she had to second guess, someone she couldn't trust to make the best choice for their burgeoning family. Divorce him, her auntie told her, but good Rasta women didn't do that. And Rita didn't want to let Bob go. She would be strong where he was weak, she decided. She would have to lead. She didn't know it, but everything was about to change. In London... Bob had met an Anglo-Jamaican named Chris Blackwell, who had a recording label. Now Chris had called with an offer for a three-album deal on that label, Island Records. He owned a big, ramshackle recording complex on Hope Road in Kingston, and the Whalers could record there. After the first album came out, they could even live there. Rita was skeptical. To her, the Island Records house looked like a boy's clubhouse. 
a place where Bob, Bunny, and Peter could party with the girls. But the Whalers were already hard at work recording the new album, Catch a Fire. And it lived up to its name. Released in April 1973, it was an international hit. Suddenly, Bob Marley and the Whalers were a global phenomenon. All the success that had evaded them had found them at once. And without anything really being said between them, she and Bob separated. He moved into the island house, and Rita moved into a house of her own with the children. For a long time, they would live apart. She kept busy. There were the children to raise, of course, and she started a garden that turned into a small farm. And then the produce from the farm turned into a small restaurant at Island House. When Bob was around, he was her best customer. She would joke that she could at least feed her husband a full meal, even if she was his wife only in name now. He had his women and didn't try to hide it, which shamed her terribly. But she had a lover too, a soccer player everyone called Tacky. It was good to have someone who loved her in her life. Sometimes she wasn't even sure where Bob was. England? Jamaica? The whalers were touring, that much she knew. She heard that Bunny swore to never get on a plane again after that tour. She heard later that Bunny and Peter had quit the band to launch their own careers. Bob Marley and the Whalers would go on, but the Whalers would be different people. The original lineup would never play together again. She was surprised when she was called down to the Island House studio. Robbie says it's an emergency, said the driver who came to fetch her. In the studio, Bob was waiting for her. Where are your friends? He met Marsha Griffiths and Judy Moat, two of Jamaica's top female singers at the time. Rita had sung recently with the two of them at a Rastafari fundraiser, the first time she'd performed in years. Now, Bob wanted the two women to be his backup singers, and he wanted Rita to sing too, to join his band, record with him, go on tour with him, work with him. She hesitated. So much had happened between them. They were so far from the two kids who had sung together in Trenchtown years ago. But he still looked at her with the same calm, frank gaze. Working with him again meant singing again. It meant music in her life again. And he said he would pay her. She said yes. That tour, and the ones that came after, would change their relationship into something new. They wouldn't be lovers. More than friends. Rita would later describe herself as his guardian angel. On the road, Rita would look after her husband, making sure Bob was eating, telling him when to go to bed, dispersing fans from his hotel room. But then she would go back to her own room, blissfully alone. Sometimes they still fought. Sometimes she sang with tears in her eyes. Then he would wait till the band was playing a song he'd written for her, No Woman, No Cry, and come over to her on stage to whisper, I love you. So much had happened in those years between 1974 and 1980. Bob's women, including his latest girlfriend, Cindy Breakspear, who'd recently been crowned Miss Jamaica, gave him more children. He told Rita he was freeing her from the burden of being forever pregnant with all the kids that he was meant to have. Instead, other women would bear them and she would stay free to sing. 
Eventually, some of Bob's children came to live in Rita's house and grew up alongside her own. Bob and Rita even survived an assassination attempt. In 1976, an election year and a time of volatility and unrest in Jamaica, the government asked Bob to play a concert for unity and peace. He couldn't say no, but some saw him as supporting the incumbent's regime. Gunmen came to his home and fired wildly, hitting Bob in the arm and grazing Rita's skull. He insisted on playing the concert anyway, both of them bandaged as he acted out the shooting as a dance on stage. Sometimes she loved him, and sometimes she couldn't stand him, but she always tried to protect him. She just couldn't protect him from what was to come. Bob was kicking a ball around with some friends one day in 1975. The ball hit his toe. The injury was severe, but Bob refused to stay off his feet. Months went by, and the toe never healed. It was always sore, always swollen. He never spoke about it, and the others seemed to forget about it, but Rita saw it when he took off his socks at night. Two years later, the nail fell off. Finally, Bob had to admit something was wrong. Cancer. Melanoma. Doctors were recommending amputating his toe, but he didn't want people to see him as a cripple. Bob refused and instead had a simple skin graft done. He was told that would be enough, and he kept on performing, going on tour, playing soccer, recording. He was seen as a revolutionary, as a hero, not just in Jamaica, but all over the world. And Rita felt like she was losing him piece by piece. Until, when they were in New York, the first stop on a world tour, Bob collapsed. What the doctor said was worse than anyone could imagine. Bob's cancer had not only not gone away, but it was very advanced. It was the fall of 1980, and Bob likely wouldn't make it to 1981. He could be treated, but at this point, it would be palliative. Their next stop was Pittsburgh. At rehearsal, he had the band run through the same song over and over. I'm hurting inside. But he didn't play it that night at the concert. Instead, the Wailers gave the audience 20 songs of love, hope, sorrow, and redemption. They were all so caught up in the moment, in feeding off the energy of the crowd, in playing the music, that they forgot about the reality of what would be facing them when Bob exited the stage. It was one of the finest performances they'd ever given. It was also their last. Bob went back to New York and checked into Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for treatment. The chemotherapy made his locks, a symbol of faith and protection for every devout Rasta, start to fall out of his head. They started to look into alternative treatments. Bob chose Germany and a holistic doctor called Joseph Issels, who lived in the mountains and had previously cured a case of melanoma. The doctor's first order of business was to remove Bob's tonsils. It was part of the medical regimen, removing any part of the body where infection could build up so that the immune system could focus on the cancer. But Rita felt cold dread go through her when she heard. They shaved what was left of his dreadlocks too. He wore a knitted hat to cover his bald head. At the very least, the treatment seemed to be minimizing his pain. 
Rita had quickly learned the case of melanoma Dr. Issels cured was far less severe than Bob's. Does Bob know that? She'd asked him. He doesn't have much time left, Dr. Issels had replied. I want to make sure he's comfortable. By March, it was still cold and snowy as Rita stood outside the facility where Bob was resting. She'd been flying back and forth from Germany to Jamaica for months now, bringing Bob his favorite Jamaican foods in the hopes it would strengthen him. All of his women had been sent away, leaving only Rita. She went inside the clinic and went to where Bob was resting. He seemed weak, but when she entered his room, he looked right at her. Do you remember Coxone's studio? Just a little rundown house, but we made such music there. He started to sing. His voice cracked, but still sweet. His mind was far away from Germany and the snow and cold. As he continued to sing of the island that had raised the both of them, she almost felt the warmth on her skin. The cancer was in his brain, his lungs, all over his body. He didn't have much time. Not at all. But then again, in November, the doctors had told him he wouldn't make it to Christmas. And it was spring already. Part of her wondered if she should have brought her children. Every day, Sharon, Sedella, Ziggy, Stephen, and Stephanie asked her what was going on with Daddy and if he was okay. They were old enough to understand he was sick, but maybe not how serious it was. Sharon was 16 now, and in recent weeks, Rita's eldest daughter had become her rock. But instead of sending for them, he made plans to meet them in Miami. He had no reason to stay in Germany. There wasn't anything more they could do for him here. Rita sighed deeply and took his hand. She couldn't cry in front of him. Not now. She just had to savor this moment. Shortly afterwards, they flew back first making a stop in Miami. But Bob's condition had severely worsened during the flight, and he was rushed to the hospital. A few days later, Bob Marley died on May 11, 1981. For two days, Bob's body lay in state in the National Arena in Kingston, with one arm over his guitar and a Bible in his hand. There were people playing his music on the streets, and his funeral became a concert. Four of Bob's children, calling themselves the Melody Makers, performed, and his mother sang, and of course the Wailers wailed. Rita sang with them, feeling as though she were floating above the stage, as if in a dream, still feeling that Bob was there, somewhere, just out of sight. She never remarried. That seemed the least important thing. She knew her calling was to keep alive the legacy of Bob Marley. She decided she would devote the rest of her life to it, and her children would carry his name. She thought of him every day. There were murals of his face everywhere, street performers singing his music. In death, Bob had become something greater than he ever could have imagined in life. In his short life, Bob Marley pioneered a new genre of music and achieved worldwide fame in the process. He always wanted his music to be universal, and it was, 
inspiring people all over the world to a state of justice. But this isn't about them. This is about Rita Marley, who never stopped believing in the power of her husband's gift, even as their relationship transformed from romantic partners to something greater. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com. That's doubleelvis.com.